about spirit, soul, and body, and this is just my way of drawing it. Your spirit, soul, and body does not look this way. But the reason I draw it this way is to show you that there are actually just two parts, and yet there's three parts to you. First Thessalonians 5.23 says you have a spirit, soul, and body. But yet, in Acts chapter... Excuse me, is that Acts chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, that scripture says that the Word of God is so sharp that it can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The terminology that's used there shows you that the Word of God's the only thing that can divide soul and spirit. Can you see what it's saying there? It's saying that it is so hard to separate the soul and the spirit that the Word of God is the only thing that can do it. Everybody see that? So, in actuality, your soul and your spirit together make one part of you, and then you have a body. Now, I'm not denying that you are spirit, soul, and body, but I'm trying to get you to see a relationship. Your soul and your spirit are meant to function together. And I'm going to say something here that I'm going to try and get in and verify later tonight. I'm not going to verify it right now, and I know that this is contrary to most of the other people that teach spirit, soul, and body. I'm not trying to pick bones with anybody, amen. Don't anybody get upset with me. I'll... You can take this as angiology or whatever you want. But in the Old Testament where it says that God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul, that living soul, as we talked about last night, when the breath entered into man, the breath is what gave him life. So the living soul refers to the spirit and the soul together formed a living soul, the inner person of a man. And I believe that what the Old Testament called a living soul is what the New Testament calls a heart and that your heart is comprised of your spirit and your soul together. Now, I know that there's a lot of people that say that your heart applies only to your spirit, and there's really not any doctrinal problem there because what they're saying through saying that is basically the same thing that I'm saying, but it does make a difference. We're going to deal with some of that tonight, okay? And without me going into a lot of explanation why I believe that your heart is your soul and your spirit together, just a real simple explanation is the fact that the Bible talks about your heart being double-minded, your heart being evil, out of the abundance of the heart your mouth speaks, and you know that sometimes your heart is, I mean, your mouth is not speaking like what it should be, and so that would mean that your heart can be corrupted, that your heart can have evil thoughts in it, that your heart can be defiled, that your heart has to be purified. Everybody see that? There's a lot of scriptures that talk about that. But what we're going to talk about tonight is that our spirit cannot be defiled. And our spirit is not double-minded. And our spirit is not inadequate. And it is not weak. So, to make those scriptures harmonize to where it's not saying that your spirit is defiled and that your spirit is all of these things, I believe what it's talking about is that your spirit and your soul together make the term heart. Now, there are certain times in the Bible that the Bible definitely, when it says heart, refers to the spirit, and there's no doubt about it. But I don't think that that means that that is all that the heart comprises. It's just like if I was to go talking about my car parked out here tonight. And if I was to say, boy, that is a big, it's, it's a hot car. That thing really has a lot of get up and go. Now, what am I talking about? That that bumper's got a lot of power in it? Amen. Or that the windshield wipers are really hot, they can get up and go? Well, now that's part of the car, isn't it? But you see, it's understood by the context that I'm talking specifically about the motor. Everybody get that? And of course, a whole car is uh, 
There's more parts to the car than just the motor. But you see, you can specify by saying car, you could be speaking about the motor of that car, and the context will tell what it's talking about. I believe it's the same thing with the Scripture. The Scripture does, in a few places, say heart, and it's definitely talking about the spirit of a man, but you, by context, can look at it and see that. Amen? So anyway, we're going to get into that a little bit later and verify that. Praise God. First of all, I just want to turn to some scriptures. First of all, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is a scripture that we touched on last night, and tonight this is where I want to take up. We, we shared last night how that the Spirit is the real part of us. The Bible says out of John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is a Spirit, and those that worship Him must. It didn't say might, it said must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the Spirit is the part of us that God inhabits. The Spirit is the part of us that must worship the Lord Jesus. The Spirit is the life-giving part of us. Everybody got that? This is the real us. And that's basically what we talked about last night is about not going by what you feel because what you feel is either your sense knowledge, this body, or it's your emotions, feelings. And these two realms right here are subject to corruption. They are subject to Satan fighting against us and coming against us, but our spirit is not subject to Satan destroying us. It is the true part of us, and our spirit is not defeated. Our spirit is not any of these kind of things. So we were basically sharing about how not to go by the dictates of the flesh, but instead to go by what the spirit has to say. So what I want to do tonight is begin to look at our spirit man. What is our spirit? How is our spirit? Amen? And again, I want to refresh your memory. John chapter 6, verse 63 says, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. There is no way to know what your spiritual man is like except through God's Word. You can't take a preacher's word for it. You can't trust somebody else. Or you can't go by how you feel because you cannot feel how your spirit feels. Amen? You can't. If I hit my finger with a hammer, I could sit there and feel what it felt like. I mean, I've got feelings that can discern that. That's a physical thing, but there's no way for you to discern what your spirit's doing and how your spirit is feeling apart from God's Word. This Word is spirit, and it is life. Amen? So we're going to look in God's Word, and I want you to make this commitment that whatever God's Word says your spirit is, you're going to believe it. Okay? Whatever God's Word says about you is what you believe, not what you feel. There'll be some of you tonight that'll sit here and think, well, man, I just don't know about what he's saying. I sure don't feel that way. I sure hadn't seen that. I sure hadn't understood that. Well, don't go by what you see, taste, hear, smell, or feel. You go by what God's Word says. If you'll first of all start believing that, you will see the rest of it work out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, Another thing we referred to last night is when it talks about being in Him or in Christ or it says in whom. That's said about three, I think it's 380-something times in the New Testament. The terminology in Christ, in Him, in whom or something like that is used. And every time that is used, this is talking about your spiritual man. Your spiritual man is the only part of you that is in Christ Jesus. Everybody following this? Don't anybody get upset with me and say, well, wait a minute, God cares about my body and my soul too. I agree, but we're establishing something. Like say, for instance, the scripture right here says that if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. All right? So the part of you that is in Christ Jesus is a new creature. Is that talking about your body? 
No, because if you're fat before you get saved, you're fat after you get saved, right? Your body is not automatically a new creature. Is that talking about your mind? No, because your mind, if it was polluted before it got saved, it's polluted after it gets saved until you begin to renew it. Now, your body and your soulish realm are subject to change. I'm not saying that they can't be changed, but it is not the part of you that passes away and all things become new. The part of you that was changed and that is in Christ Jesus is your spiritual man. John chapter 4 says that out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. So your belly is where your spiritual man is, right? So your spiritual man right here. That's the reason I keep pointing at my belly. Like we said last night, some of us look like we got more of the spirit than others. But that's not so. We're going to get into that. Praise the Lord. So anyway, our spiritual man is the part that is in Christ Jesus. It is not your body and it is not your soul. Now this is important that you realize this. Because you see, most of us have been taught to believe what our body and what our soul have to say and what they have to feel. But the truth of it is, that part of you is not saved. That is not the part of you that's been changed. And because a lot of people haven't understood this, when God says that you're changed and when God says that you're an overcomer, a lot of people go ask their body about it. Body, do you feel like an overcomer? No, I feel sick. And then they ask their emotions about it. Well, how do you feel? Well, I sure don't feel like I'm an overcomer, and so that settles it. Word of God said, I'm an overcomer, but I'm not an overcomer. You see, that has nothing to do with it, because that's not the part of you that is in Christ Jesus. My spirit is the part that is an overcomer. My body and soul are not overcomers. Now, if I will believe that my spirit is a world overcomer and that it is created in the righteousness of God, and if I will put my faith to work, then I'll experience that victory in my body. But it is not automatic. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Now, that's what we're talking about. When you're born of God, that's your spiritual man, you overcome the world. Not you might overcome the world, but you overcome it. I mean, it's a past tense thing. Whosoever is born of God hath over... Is that the way it says? Let me read that. First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verse 4. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. That is an emphatic statement. It is already done. When you are born of God, you overcome the world. Some people might say, but I don't feel like I'm a world overcomer. But you see, the next part of that verse says, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. My spiritual man is a world overcomer. And even though my spirit is already an overcomer, it is not going to be manifest in my body until I get faith functional. When faith functions, then the power that's locked in my spirit becomes a reality in my soul and in my body. Everybody got that? But the point that I'm stressing here, I want you to see, it is your spirit that is saved, not your body, not your soul. Now, they have a purchase. They have been purchased, but they have not been saved. Let's look in Romans chapter 8 at this scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. It's talking about that the animal creation is also going to be delivered when God comes back and brings in salvation, righteousness. It says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. Now, the writer of Hebrews here was talking to people who were saved, they were born again, and they were also filled with the Holy Ghost. And he said that we are waiting for the redemption of our body. Now, he was talking to saved people, saying that we are waiting for the redemption of our body. I thought I was already redeemed. Your spirit's redeemed, 
but not your body. That's what we're waiting for. And this basically, you see, is the entire Christian life. Some people may wonder how the Lord could promise you so many things and say that you've already been blessed and that you're already an overcomer and all of these things when it's evident by looking at your situation that you aren't. But you see what the Lord is speaking? He's speaking the spiritual truth. God's a spirit. God operates in the spiritual realm. We receive from God spiritually. I am an overcomer. I am the righteousness of God. I am blessed. I am healed. I am everything that God says I am. But it is not yet manifest in my body until I begin to get hold of the truth and renew this body. And this is the conflict in the Christian life. In my spiritual man, I am complete, praise God. In my spiritual man, I have attained. I am a world overcomer. But I have got a body and a soul to deal with. And they have to be renewed. They have to be brought into subjection. And whether you realize it or not, the Scripture says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and they are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. They are in opposition. This is the Christian life. You see, the flesh has been taught how to go one way, and here's the Spirit trying to tell you that you are blessed, that you're an overcomer, that God shall supply your needs, and your flesh is going just the opposite. And the Christian life is learning how to bring your soul and your body in subjection to the Spirit. The Spirit will never, never, never force you to do anything. Now, everybody get this. We talked a little bit about this last night, that the Spirit never forces you to do anything. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe it's verse 32. Let's read this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32. It says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This is simply saying that your spirit within you is subject to you. It will not violate your free will. Some people say, God made me do this. God didn't make you do anything. God may prod you. Now, he may put quite a bit of pressure on you, but God has never forced anybody to do anything except in final judgment. God gave man a free will. So God doesn't force you to do things. God does not force people to do things. And it's the same thing with the power that's locked in our spirit. It will not force you to be a world overcomer. When I first got turned on to the Lord, I used to say, Lord, make me, make me go out and live for you. Make me get in the Word. Make me do this. And you can't do that. I've had people come up and say, pray for me that I won't be carnal anymore. I can't make you not be carnal. That's your decision. I've had people say, pray for me that I'll get in the Word. I can't make you get in the Word. That's your decision. God will not force you to do anything. So the thing that I'm saying is, even though we've got power right here in our spirit, you have a soul and a body that you have to bring into subjection. And until they get in agreement with the spirit, all of the life and the glory of God is going to stay locked right here in your spirit. And you have all of the power of the Godhead available unto you, but it's not functional because of your soul and your spirit. But it's important that you realize where this power is. Because you see, a lot of us, because we haven't seen it manifest, because we haven't seen it working in our life, there's a lot of people that get into the realm that they think, Oh, Lord, I just don't have enough faith. Man, you got all the faith you could ever use. That's a whole other teaching. And most of you probably heard me minister about that. But we have the measure of faith. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. I have the same faith that indwelt the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is right here in my spirit. I don't need any more faith. All I need to do is learn how to yield to it, renew my mind with it, learn how to confess it and act it, and God's faith will work for me. I used to pray, God, give me more power. 
Lord, give me power. You know, you can't get any more power than what you got. When you receive the Holy Ghost, the Bible says you receive power. And guess what? I was talking to a lady this morning, and she says, you know, the Holy Ghost comes. She's telling me about some people, and she says, you know, the Holy Ghost came into them a little bit. And I said, wait a minute. The Holy Ghost doesn't come into somebody a little bit. He's either there or he's not there. And if you've got the Holy Ghost, you've got all of the Holy Ghost that there is to get. Did you know it? And you've got all of the power of the Godhead. Brothers and sisters, we don't need more power. But the problem is, we've got a soul and a body that have not been dealt with. Most people think that if you get the power of God, it's just automatically going to control. That is not the case. We have a soul and a body that God will never force to do anything. You, by your free will, have to submit your soul and your body to the control of the Spirit. It's just a very simple democratic process, right? <laughs> Amen. You got three parts here. Your spirit's always in favor of God. Satan is always tempting your body, and this body, 90% of the time, will be deciding contrary to the will of God. It'll want to go lay down instead of study the Word of God. And your soul right here is the deciding factor. If you put your soul in agreement with the Spirit, that's two against one. And your body, what did I say? If you put your soul in agreement with the Spirit, that's two against one, your body will obey it. If you put your soul in agreement with the lust of the flesh, then your spirit is going to have to tag along. Now, it won't go into the sin. It won't do that. But, I mean, it will not be free to move. Your body and your soul will dominate you. It's just real simple. But the point that I want you to see is right here in your spirit, who you are. Now, just... Separate yourself for a minute from your soul and your body. Because some of you will be thinking about, well, why isn't it manifest? We'll get into why it isn't working. But first of all, I want you to see what is in your spirit, whether you are experiencing this or not. You got a question? Yeah, Andy, but when I was in Denver and I, uh, the Spirit says 4 o'clock in the morning a.m. and I said, Amen. I tell you, it, that's good. The Lord may be doing that, if nothing else, to bring your body into subjection. We was talking about that last night. It's good for you. It's good to do some things that you don't have to do. God wouldn't make him pray at 4 o'clock in the morning. But it would be good if he'll obey it because it'll discipline him. It'll get him sensitive to the Lord. It's good. Praise the Lord. But anyway, the point that I'm saying is, I want you to see who you are in your spirit because... If you don't know beyond any shadow of a doubt who you are, then you are going to go by what you feel. And brothers and sisters, if you go by what you feel, you're going to be defeated. And that's basically what's been happening to the Christian realm. Because we are more confident in what we feel than what we believe that we are. So what we're going to do tonight is go through and show us what has happened with our spirit. Where is your spirit? What kind of power do you have in your spirit? And once you realize this... Once you realize this, there's a scripture in Philemon verse 6, and he says, The communication of your faith will become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Once you ever start seeing who you are in Christ Jesus, you're fixing to change some things. People, the reason they are putting up with defeat, the reason Christians are living such a substandard life is because they really don't know that there's anything better. Most of us have been thought, made to believe, rather, that our inheritance starts when we die and go to be with the Lord. And that's basically what a lot of Christians think. I'm saved. I've confessed the Lord. If I was to die, I'd go to be with the Lord. I wouldn't go to hell. But they don't realize 
that right now our salvation is started. Once you ever see that right now your spirit, man, is completely changed. Once you see that you have the power of the Godhead living and abiding on the inside of you, you're going to start resisting some of these things that have been oppressing you. Somebody's going to get up and say, well, if I've got all of this, then I just refuse to be sick. You get up and kick old sickness in the face, amen, and go on. You'll quit sitting there in poverty and submitting to it because you'll start saying, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. It'll make your faith become effectual. It'll begin to work. And so we're going to get into this right now, amen. First of all, it says, when you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And if you'll follow that down, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17 is the verse we read. If you'll follow it on down to verse 21, it says, For he made him, speaking of God the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us. For what purpose? That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, if you are going to accept the fact that Jesus died for your sins you've got to accept the second part of that verse. For the first 10 or 15 years of my Christian life, I accepted that Jesus died for my sins, and I really believed it. And I believed like a, uh, you know, an insurance policy that if I was to die, I wouldn't have to go to hell. I had fire prevention. Amen? But I didn't believe the second part of that statement, and that is that if He died for my sins, it was to make me the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I couldn't accept that. I was always taught that, man, I am unrighteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. Don't you all believe that? None righteous, no, not one. All of my righteousness is just filthy rags, you old dirty, rotten sinner. Amen. That's what I always had preached to me. And I heard a man get up one time at a full gospel businessman's meeting and say, I am a sorry, rotten, no good, dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace. Well, that's not true. This is one thing you've got to realize. That you see, there was a part of you, your old spirit, before you got born again, the Scripture says out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says that it was dead in trespasses and sin. That doesn't mean that it was non-functional. Death means separation. It was separated from God, and it was trapped in trespasses and sins. It was a dead spirit. But when you came to the Lord... God took away the dead spirit, and God gave you a new spirit. This is the part of you that is born again, and it is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Look at that scripture. Boy, that'll change your life if you can believe this. Ephesians 4, 24 says, And that you put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. This spiritual man right here, it is righteous, and it is truly holy. Now, it is not just a little bit righteous. This isn't something that he's talking about in principle, that somehow in the books of heaven, God looks at me, you know, and makes me righteous when I'm really not. No, I really am righteous. My spirit is really righteous, and it is really holy. It is the true righteousness, and it is the true holiness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says that Jesus is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is my righteousness. My spirit is righteous. Now somebody, see, that's hard for some people to receive because they wait. They say, wait a minute, I've seen you do an unrighteous act. Well, you may have seen my body do something that's unrighteous. You may have seen me say something out of my mind, out of my soul it was unrighteous, but you have never seen this spirit do anything unrighteous yet because it is the righteousness of God. 
Now see, you need to be able to discern this because lots of times when people commit sin, when they make a mistake and they fall short, they come before God saying, Oh God, I'm so filthy and ungodly and unclean and they don't feel like that they have any rights or privileges to God using them. Now all of us have seen that, right? I've made a mistake. God couldn't use me. I'm filthy. I'm defiled. What you need to realize is it's your body or it's your soul that's defiled, not your spirit man. Your spirit man is still retaining its righteousness. It is not corrupted by your sin. Now, I don't have time to explain this completely, but let me just real briefly say this. Hebrews chapter 6 says, If you fall away, it's impossible to renew you again under repentance, seeing you crucify to yourselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. You cannot lose salvation and then be born again. There is such a thing as renouncing salvation. Wait a second, I'll get to your question. There is such a thing as renouncing salvation. But if it happens, there is no such thing as a repentance again because you would have to crucify to yourself the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now, this right here is the only part of you that is saved. And if it could be defiled by your sin, that means that the atonement would have to be applied again. That means Jesus would have to be crucified afresh again. You'd have to violate Hebrews, the sixth chapter. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't happen. This part of you, according to Ephesians chapter 1, has been sealed. And this spirit is not being defiled when we fall short. Now, this opens up a whole new avenue. Man, I could go in 20 different directions all at once. Well, let me answer this question, okay? To those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the terminology, in Christ Jesus again. There is no condemnation to you in Christ Jesus. Your spirit is not condemned. It is in right standing with God. It is righteous and it is truly holy. And brothers and sisters, it remains truly holy. Regardless of whether you are living up to it or not. Now this opens up a whole new avenue. And like I said, I don't know how to cover all of these in one time. Boy, I tell you, it'd be nice if we just lock ourselves in for a few days and wade through some of these things. But let me say this, that I'm going to say this real simple. I know that this will probably take some more explanation. Don't anybody get bent out of shape with me. But what happens when you commit sin, it doesn't affect your relationship with God. Because... The Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is a spirit and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. This part of you is not stained by that sin. It's not unholy. We've been taught that God breaks fellowship with you if you sin. God won't fellowship with an unholy vessel. Well, you aren't unholy. You've been sanctified and cleansed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, By one offering you are sanctified forever. And then verse 14 says, Those who He sanctified, He preserved forever. Forever. You don't lose it every time you blow it and do something wrong. This spiritual man is retaining its right standing with God. There's other scriptures that verify this that we'll be getting into just a little bit later. So your relationship with God isn't broken because God's a spirit and He deals with your spiritual man, not your physical body and your soul that committed the sin or the unrighteousness. But sin is deadly and it will hinder you in your walk with the Lord because Satan fights in the body and in the soul realm. He can't touch your spirit. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you submit your soul, your thought life, your emotions or your will to the devil or your body, 
then Satan is going to begin to dominate them. And even though God still loves you and you have right standing in your spiritual man, you've got to have all three parts in agreement to see that power manifest. So sin will directly affect the manifestation of God's power in your life, but it does not turn God against you. It does not make God break fellowship with you. And boy, that's powerful. I'd say 99% of the people in here have been taught directly opposite that. Most of us have been taught to think that God's mad at you because you committed sin and God's going to break fellowship. Let me explain something else, too. When I was, before I got uh, turned on to the Word, we used to use these little tracks to lead people to the Lord. And in these tracks, they're uh, Campus Crusade for Cracks. The force, <laughs> Campus Crusade for Christ tracks. And they're called Four Spiritual Laws and things like this. And anyway, in it, this is going to be small because I got most of my board used up. You're going to have to pray for good eyesight, amen. But they'd draw one cliff like this, and on it they'd put an M, which stood for God, and then they'd draw another cliff over... What did I say? An M that stands for man, and then they'd put a G over here that stands for God. And they'd say that there is a great gulf between man and God, and regardless of how good you are, you may be strong, but you can't approach. If you can jump that far, you'll still fall short. There is no way for man in his own ability to approach unto God. And so they put people in a completely hopeless situation, and then they bring Jesus into it, and they draw a cross like this, and they have the cross bridge the gap. And they tell you that now through Jesus, man is able to enter straight into God. They erase the man and they put him over here on God's side. And they tell you that man is now in union with God. And they lead a person to the Lord, pray the sinner's prayer, and you're saved. Now that's good as far as it goes. But did you know what those same people will do? After you get saved and you go a day or two or a week or a month and all of a sudden something goes wrong and you get discouraged and you lose that immediate joy that you first started out with and you fall flat of your face, you come back to those people that led you to the Lord and say, what's wrong? And you tell them, say, well, sin separated you from God. And you just, in effect, wipe Jesus out and you put man back over here on this cliff separated from God and you put those people back in the same position as they were before they got saved, with the exception that they'd say, well, if you used to die, you'd still go to be with the Lord, but it's going to break your fellowship. Well, now, brothers and sisters, that's just denying what Jesus did. If you have to get back over here, well, then you're going to have to have the atonement of Jesus for you every time to get you back into fellowship. And whether people say that or not, that's basically the way that a lot of people think. They got to go through the valley, and they got to go down to the altar and moan and groan and weep and wail and repent and travail and pray through. Get back and right standing with God. Well, the good news of the gospel is that I stay in right standing with God, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. And somebody will say, that sounds like blasphemy. You think you're holy enough? Well, no, but I think Jesus was, amen. And I think Jesus did just exactly what he said. He made me the righteousness of God, and it's not conditional on me living a holy life. My holy life is effectual to keep Satan out of the way from messing me up. But my holy life is not buying me right standing with God. Now, this is what religion is teaching, though, see? Religion is teaching you that if you don't go to church on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all these other times, that, boy, God, you're in trouble. God's not going to bless you. If you don't play, pay your tithes, God's going to burn your barley fields. Most of you don't understand that expression, but that is a godly, I mean, it's a scriptural expression. Joab would not listen to Absalom. 
and I won't explain the whole story, but Absalom was trying to get Joab's attention. He sent messenger after messenger after messenger, and Joab completely ignored Absalom. So one day, Absalom sent his messengers over to Joab's barley fields, and they were just getting ready to harvest it, and they burnt the whole field down to the ground, destroyed his crops, and Joab was on his doorstep in nothing flat and said, Why'd you burn my barley fields? And he says, Because you wouldn't answer me. He got his attention. And I used to hear, there's a sermon preached by a real famous preacher, I won't call his name, and it's about God will burn your barley fields. And what they're saying is that if you get out of line, God's going to judge you with sickness, disease, God's going to kill your son, God's going to destroy your home, God's going to knock you to your knees and humble you, He's going to burn your barley fields, get your attention. Bless God, that's not true. Somebody says, but wait a minute, God's holy and God's got to judge sin. I agree God's holy and I believe that God has judged sin. Once and for all in the flesh of His Son. Praise God, I'm not bearing my sin. There's a lot of people today that would fight you for the right to bear their sin. No, sir, I know that when I get out of line, God's going to judge me. That's not true. God will correct you, but God's correction is not judgment. There's a totally difference. And God's means of correction, if you look in 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Word of God is given for correction for instruction, for reproof, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. God is not chastising you and correcting you with sickness, poverty, disease, trials, tribulations, troubles. God's correction is His Word. That's only that's the only mean of correction God has. And somebody will say, what about in the Old Testament? Boy, people in the Old Testament, they got out of line, they got zapped. <laughs> Amen. Miriam spoke against, spoke against Moses and immediately the leprosy of God rose up in her forehead. The Bible says the leprosy of God came up in her forehead. What about that? Well, brothers and sisters, that was not correction. That was punishment. That was judgment. You read it. After that time, Miriam, who was a great leader of the people, led out the women with psalmstries and dances and all these kind of things. From that time on, the only thing said of Miriam is that she died and there was great lamentation made for her in mourning. That was it. That was the end of Miriam's servant of the Lord. That was it. What about Uzziah, the king, who went in and offered a sacrifice and the leprosy of God rose up in his forehead? That was it for him, too. He was a pretty powerful man of God before that. And he thought he was so powerful, he went in and offered a sacrifice to God, which kings couldn't do. Only priests did it. And boy, God judged him. But it wasn't a blessing. It was a curse. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law. Amen. I am redeemed from the curse of the law. I'm not denying that in the Old Testament, God put things on people because he did. Because God was just and holy and the atonement was not completely made. And God had to be strict on people. But brothers and sisters, we are not under that law anymore. God is not dealing with me that way anymore. Amen? God is chastising me through His Word. Punishment does not come upon a believer. Sin's got to be judged. It was judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Judge sin in the flesh. In the flesh of what? In the flesh of His Son. That the righteousness... Boy, now this will blow your mind. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. All of this happened so that the righteousness 
of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. While somebody says, I see that, but you are forgetting this little phrase about walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You've got to be living up to it. You've got to be walking in the Spirit. You've got to be living a holy life for that to be true. That did not say who walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. It said after it. If you have committed your life to Jesus, if you are born again, you have begun walking after the Spirit. You are in Christ Jesus. There's a difference in seeking after the Spirit and living in the Spirit. Amen. There's a big difference. And the Scripture says that through the atonement of the Lord Jesus, because He bore our sin, that I am now fulfilling. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in me. Somebody looks in the mirror and says, Well, man, I've seen myself do some bad things. I know that my mind's not up to it. Well, you see, you're missing the whole thing. If you don't understand spirit, soul, and body. It's not your body that's righteous. It's not your body that's in right standing with God and that's fulfilled all of the righteousness of the law. But your spirit has fulfilled the righteousness of the law. It is perfect. It is holy. It is without sin. It is without rebuke. And it is in a perfect relationship with God that all of the devils out of hell can't destroy. Man, that turns me on. Because I don't know about you, there's sometimes I do some things wrong. Probably y'all won't do that anymore. And Satan comes at me and begins to condemn me. And you know what I do? I just retreat back into my spirit, man. And I say, Father, I turn from that stuff and I ask forgiveness and cleansing so that Satan's not going to destroy me. But I am sure glad that I am still the righteousness of God. Praise you that I am forgiven. Praise you that my sins have been blotted out and that this did not affect my relationship. Boy, it keeps me from falling into this old valley that a lot of people get into. Because I know that I retain my relationship with God through who Jesus is, not through who I am. Now, the Scripture says that this spirit within us is a born-again spirit. It is a new spirit. Let me share another few Scriptures out of Romans chapter 6 on this line before we go any further. Romans chapter 6. Somebody might say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got an old man and we've got a new man and they're in conflict. I've got an old, I mean, I don't doubt that what you say is right. I've got a new man on the inside of me, but I've got an old man. The way I had it taught me in the Baptist church was that I had a white dog and a black dog inside me and they fought together all the time. And whichever one I fed the most won. That's the illustration. That's word for word what I was taught. Any of you ever heard that? And you know what that does? It produces wrong thinking, and wrong thinking produces wrong believing, and it gets you in a mess. For instance, this is the, that's the same attitude, did you know, that they go at Alcoholic Anonymous with. They get up, and those alcoholics, the way they deal with it is they have to stand up and they start their testimony by saying, I've been an alcoholic for X number of years. I'm always an alcoholic. I've been sober for three months, three years, however long. But they get up by always admitting that I am an alcoholic, but I am sober at the moment. And what they're saying is, on one hand, I'm still the same person that I was, but on the other hand, I'm not living like I was. Well, basically, that's what Christians have been thinking. That, well, I'm still an old sinner. I've done all of these things wrong, but at the moment, God has forgiven me. And they think that they're forgiven and dirty all at the same time. Well, that's not true. The reason that this makes an important difference is because that old alcoholic has a defeat attitude on the inside of him. He knows every moment of his day he tells himself, I'm an alcoholic. He's confessing it. He's believing it. And that puts him under Satan's dominion. 
But man, you can take an alcoholic and tell them that, look, if you'll accept Jesus, he'll make you a new creature. No longer are you an alcoholic. You are now the righteousness of God. Old things have passed away. And you never, never, never under any circumstances ever have to come under the dominion of that drink again. You can be set free by the power of God. Now, that's the gospel. That's social, the other part that tells you, well, you can just clean up a little bit, but be careful. you still got that old alcoholic man on the inside of it. A born-again person doesn't have that old alcoholic man on the inside of it. We are a new creature, totally changed. Amen? That's what it says in Romans chapter 6. Paul was ministering along the same lines as what I'm talking about, and the immediate answer, the immediate question is, every time you minister something like this, people say, well, does that mean that you can go out and live in sin? That's what Paul ran into. He said this on a bunch of different occasions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, he was reading somebody's mind. And he says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What he's saying is, God forbid, how could you think of living in sin? Because that part of you that used to want to live in sin is dead. It's gone. It's non-existent. And now we are risen with Christ. He is simply saying, look, this doesn't free us to go live in sin because, you see, a person that is truly born of God is wanting to live for God. A person that's going to take what I'm saying here and say, well, praise God, that means I can go out and kick up my heels and do whatever. Jesus took my sin. I can go live like the devil. I'd be the first one to tell you that you need to get born again. You need to get saved. You're a hypocrite. You're just playing church. You're a tear sown among the wheat. The Bible says out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, that every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. You are seeking to purify yourself if you're truly born again. Now, you may be having varying degrees of success or failure at it, but your desire is to serve the Lord. And when you see that Jesus has forgiven you of your sin, it doesn't free you to go live in sin. It frees you from sin. Amen. Condemnation compels you to live in sin. Righteousness compels you to live above sin. Amen? And this, these scriptures right here are showing you that our old man died with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have an old man and a new man living on the inside of me. My old man's gone. I got nothing but a new man right here. Somebody will say, now wait a minute. If all you got's a new man, why do you still do some of the old man things? Any of you thinking that? What? Now, wait a minute. If, if I'm a new man, why aren't I living like a new man? Because God gave you a body, and especially this soul. Your soul is the master control over your entire person. It's not where the power comes from. It's not the real you, but it does retain the master control. It's where your will is, and your will is the part of you that makes you an individual. And your will is located in your soul. And God made your soul, your mental part of you, kind of like a computer that you can program. And you can train it, and you can teach it how to function, and it will continue to function just exactly the way that you teach it. So here lies the problem. Our old man taught us how to live in sin. It taught us how to yield to the lust of the flesh. It taught us how to be in strife. It taught us how to hate instead of how to love. It taught us how to be greedy instead of how to give. And this is the problem, you see, is that so few people have taken their new life, seen who they were, and have begun to change their thinking. Their old man wants to rise up and get in anger, and they say, Why am I doing that? Man, I'm still living in sin. That sin still has a dominion over me. That's not true. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under, I mean, you're not under the law, but under grace. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. That's a lie. Well, then why am I doing these things? It's because you were taught how to do the wrong thing and you've not taken the time to renew yourself and teach yourself that greater is he that's in you. When you feel a thought or something rise up on the inside of you, don't get condemned about, oh, no, how could I do something like that? I'm supposed to be more spiritual than that. Just realize that all that is is the devil, and it's something that the devil taught you. It just came out of your old past and sit there and jump on the thing and renew it and rebuke it and command it to get out of your life. The point that I'm saying is there is nothing within you that makes you live in defeat. We have all been taught to think that total success is impossible, that there's a part of you that is just human. Have you all ever sung this song about, Lord, I'm only human, I'm just a man? You are not only human. You've got part of you that's still human, but you've got the spirit of the living God on the inside of you. You've got a new spirit, and you are not only human. That's the reason you've been experiencing defeat, because you think that there's a part of you that's only human and that tries you may. You can't have total success. You're going to have to fall flat of your face sometime. So just roll over and accept it. Roll with the punches, and man, you have been getting exactly what you believe for. But the good news is that there is a part within you that is above only and not beneath, and brothers and sisters, it doesn't know any defeat. You don't have to have defeat. You don't have to be defeated. There is nothing within you to make you accept sickness, to make you accept failure in any area of your life. God intended for you to be a total 100% success. It's not automatic because you've got to believe for it, renew your mind, but it is there and you are capable of it and there is no reason, no reason at all that you have to accept defeat. Man, when you start seeing who you are in Christ Jesus, did you know what it'll do? It'll keep you from accepting defeat. There's been times that I've wanted to accept defeat. I was tired of fighting. I was ready to quit and go to the field house and throw it in and say, man, I lost. Let's go play again tomorrow or something. But did you know what? The Holy Ghost will rise up on the inside of me and get to reminding me who I am. And when I see who I am, it just doesn't seem right for that little sniveling rat, the devil, to beat me when I am the righteousness of God. Something in me just doesn't like that, amen? And I get to seeing greater is he, than me, he that's in me than he that's in the world, and I just can't put up with letting a second-rate so-and-so beat me, amen? It'll get some faith going on the inside of you. Get a fight going, praise the Lord. But because most Christians haven't known who they were, they quit real easy because they've got a defeat image. You need to start seeing who you are. You need to start realizing that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Let me show you something else about this spirit in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Where is it? It says, If any man have not the spirit of Christ... There it is, verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You cannot be born again unless you have the Spirit of Christ. Now, I'm going to throw some things out as andeology. You can take them however you want to. It's your business. But I'm going to make a point. My point's correct, regardless of whether you think what I'm saying is correct or not. Your spirit that is born again and that is a new creature is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not talking about the Holy Ghost. Now, I know there's a lot of people who don't agree with that, but the, one of the basis that I say on this is because it says that you have to have the Holy Ghost to be born of God. 
And you can find scriptural examples like the 19th chapter of the book of Acts where there were disciples who were believers and they had not even heard if there had been such thing as the Holy Ghost. And so they received the Holy Ghost and yet they already had the Lord. They were disciples. Why would Paul go up and ask somebody who is a scribe or a Pharisee or a hypocrite, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? That would have been a dumb question, wouldn't it? He was talking about somebody who was a believer in Jesus. He called them disciples. Would he call a Pharisee a disciple? He was talking about people who were seeking the Lord. They had heard the message of the Lord, but they had missed out on the message of Pentecost. And anyway, those people were born again, and yet the Scripture says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But anyway, the point that I'm wanting you to see, whether you agree on that point or not, is that your born-again man on the inside of you is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ living in you. And the Spirit that you have received is not a puny spirit, it is not inadequate, it is not weak, it is not defiled, it is not any of these things. It is the exact same Spirit that indwelt the body of the Lord Jesus Christ living and abiding on the inside of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, 17 says that when we, those that are joined unto the Lord are one Spirit. I become one Spirit with the Lord. My born-again man is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am one Spirit with Him. John chapter 1 verse 16 says, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Talking of Jesus, I have received the fullness. Get this. I have the fullness of Jesus living and abiding on the inside of me. Through what? My born-again spirit. It is the fullness of God Almighty. It is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it retains the exact same measure of faith, the exact same measure of anointing, the exact same unction that Jesus had in his spirit, and even more, because it is now the raised again, born again spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I pray that the Lord would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And in verse 19 it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought, when he which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. He's saying, open up your eyes and see the exceeding greatness of his power towards us. The same power that he used in Christ to raise him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power. Can you see that? How could you ever ask for more power? That's saying that you have the same amount of power manifested towards you that it took to raise Jesus from the pits of hell and set him at the right hand of God the Father far above all principality, power, might, and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Boy, brothers and sisters, the spirit that has been given unto us is powerful. It is in right standing with God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, speaking of Jesus, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. Now, how do you understand that? Is my body seated at the right hand of God the Father? Is my mind functioning like the mind of Jesus? No. It's getting more like it, but it's not there yet. But in my spiritual man, I am as he is. I am a direct 
duplicate of the Spirit of Christ. And so are you through the atonement of Jesus. Boy, if y'all could believe that, I guarantee you the devil would be in trouble. The devil would be in trouble. The devil, you see, has been going around trying to condemn you. Oh, you old ungodly worm. You rat. You what makes you think God had answered your prayer. You did this. You remember getting mad at your husband or at your wife? And you see, he's got us to thinking that God, that we don't deserve to get anything from God. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is on the inside of you. You are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We talked this morning about the husband and wife relationship. And did you know that the woman was taken from the man and not just a little bit of the man uh, was taken and the woman formed around it, but out of that one rib, a whole body was formed from that one rib. Every cell, every molecule in the woman's body is from the man. And in Ephesians chapter 5, it says this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, our spiritual man. It is 100% a carbon copy of the Lord Jesus Christ in exactly the same way as the woman was taken from the man. In exactly the same way. We are now taken from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are world overcomers, brothers and sisters. I got the power and the anointing of the Holy Ghost living on the inside of me. Jesus Almighty is in me, and Jesus will do through me just exactly the way he did through his physical body. And John chapter 14, verse 12 says, Even greater works than these will he do. Praise God. Greater than raising the dead and healing the sick, cleansing the leper, casting out devils, even greater things, praise God, going to be done. It can be done when you begin to realize who you are in Christ Jesus. You see, God hasn't been the one that's been withholding his power from us. And it's not actually the devil that's been stopping us. Satan has been lying to us. He has deceived us and kept us from seeing who we are. And we've stopped the power of God. The Bible says that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. That's through your spiritual man, because this is the new born-again part of you. I can do all things. And your soul and your body and your religion teaching is telling you, Oh, we are just so weak and Lord... We come before you so humbly, and Lord, I know that I just can't do anything about this situation. And you're directly contrary to the Word of God. The Bible says I can do all things. The Bible says I can lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And you go ask your body about it and say, man, I don't feel any tingling in my hand. There's nothing in this hand that's going to heal anybody. So you ask your body, and your body just doesn't believe it. And so you say, well, I don't know where the problem is. I wonder why those things don't happen anymore. So somebody comes up with a theory that, well, it must have passed away with the apostles. And they come up with all kinds of explanations to explain away their doubt and unbelief. Brothers and sisters, we've still got the same power right here. And if we will quit going by what we see and what we feel and what our emotions are telling us and believe that God on the inside of us is greater than he that's in the world, then praise God, you can do the same works that Jesus did. Let me share something else out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is contrasting the old law and the new law. Now remember, what we've been talking about tonight is our spirit being righteous, in right standing with God. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is contrasting the old covenant of law with the new covenant of righteousness is what it calls it. And start reading in verse 6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter. That's talking about the Old Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And you see, again, this is going right along with the same things we're saying. The, 
the new ministration is a ministration of the Spirit. And notice in that sixth verse, it's not a capital S. It's a small s. It's talking about the human spirit, the born-again spirit. Now, I do agree that the Holy Ghost also administers the new covenant, but this specifically is talking about the human spirit. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, and this is talking about the old covenant, the Old Testament, it was a ministration of death. Do you all believe that? Boy, I hear so many people get up and say, Oh, the man, the Ten Commandments, some people preach that we're under grace. Well, grace doesn't give you a license to go sin. You still have to keep the laws and the commandments of God. And boy, I've heard people scream that and preach it. I'm an old-time gospel preacher, one that believes in keeping the Ten Commandments. Well, God forbid, amen, I don't believe in it. I believe that they... Now, let me explain what I'm saying, amen. I don't believe that we are under the Ten Commandments. That was God's perfect standard. And under the Old Covenant, there was a tremendous penalty attached to it. The curse, the penalty, has been totally removed. No longer am I having to keep the Ten Commandments. But is that to say that God's changed his mind about the first commandment that thou shalt have no other gods before me no it's still God's perfect mind and since I'm wanting to please God I can still look at the Ten Commandments and find out what the will of the Lord is and it helps me serve the Lord to go look and see what God's perfect standard and judgment was but when I fall short I don't come under the judgment and under the curse and under the the ban uh, the whatever you call that amen Anyway, I don't come under the punishment that came upon people in the Old Testament because I've been redeemed from it. So I am not under the Ten Commandments. Does that mean I threw them out the window? No, I'll still look at them. I still use them to direct me. I still refer to the Old Covenant because I've had people come ask me questions. I'll say, well, look, here is God's judgment in the Old Testament. I tell them that you're removed from the curse and the punishment if you've blown it, but this is still God's perfect standard. You can still use it, but you've got to use it in the right way and realize that it is not made for a righteous man but for the lawless and for the disobedient. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. says that the law is not made for a righteous man. Who's righteous? We are, through Jesus, amen. The law was not made for me. So the Old Testament law was a ministration of death. Do you know why it was given to be a ministration of death? It, it goes on down. I won't take time to do all this because it's going into a lengthy deal. It calls it a ministration of death. It calls it a ministration of condemnation. Do you know why it's called that? Because under the old covenant, you didn't have a born-again spirit. You had a dead spirit. Your man on the inside of you was dead in trespasses and sin. It was blind to the things of God. Remember, God reveals himself through the spirit. God is a spirit, and those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in the truth. God's perfect way of dealing with a man is through the spirit. In the old covenant, even in the book of Proverbs, it says that the light... The spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, Lord, lighting all the inward parts of the belly. The spirit was meant to be the way that God communicates with man. But when that spirit died and became separated to God, God's system of communication with mankind was broke off. So, God couldn't approach him through the spirit. God had to approach mankind through the outside, through the sense knowledge, through something that you could feel. That was not God's way. That is not the way that God wanted to do it. But man was dead spiritually, and God loved man so much, he still approached mankind, and he had to come through the sense knowledge. And so he gave a law of condemnation. It condemned us. 
if you if a person ever got to thinking, well, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as so-and-so over here. I'm doing pretty good. I hadn't stolen from anybody in the last two weeks. I hadn't done this or that. You see, that's the way that that old dead spirit would lead you to believe. It would compare yourself among yourself and get a person to where they feel like, well, I must be good enough, God, would accept me. To keep people from coming into that deception, God gave a ministration of death and a ministration of condemnation. Everywhere you turned, God was condemning you. If you had diverse kinds of cloth woven together, you were condemned. Did you know that? You couldn't wear a garment that had different kinds of material in it. It all had to be one kind of material. If you did, you broke the law of God. You couldn't have a broken nose or a blemish on you and be a priest. Did you know it? You couldn't be left-handed and be accepted with God. That's pretty strict, isn't it? And those things were given to condemn you and to completely hedge you about. Galatians chapter 3 says that the law was given to shut us up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. It's just like God built a fence around you. And every time you tried to go in any direction to justify yourself and to obtain salvation through your good works, through doing this or doing that, anywhere you turn, you just completely hemmed up and it made you just turn all of your attention on God and say, God help. It was given to condemn you. It was given to break you down and to break you and bring you to your knees so that you would know that there was no hope for you except Jesus. But the, th but the scripture says in Galatians chapter 3 that now after faith has come, we are no longer under this schoolmaster. This schoolmaster is removed from us. And brothers and sisters, the most detrimental thing you could have to your Christian life today is to still be administering that ministration of death and condemnation to a live spirit. Because you see, now God isn't dealing with me through the outside and punishing me and spanking me. You know, there's a time for spanking. We spank our kids. But what if they're 30 years old? I don't come up and start spanking them. You see, I'm supposed to have instilled these values on the inside of them, and I deal with what has been instilled on the inside of them, what I've implanted on the inside of them, and I deal and draw that out of them. You see that? I'm not spanking you tonight. There's some of you that sometimes I'd like to get you and just pound it into your head and say, Get this, amen. But that's not the way you do it. You have to plant the words in there, and then you have to deal with it. Well, you see, there comes a time to stop that. There was a time before we got a born-again spirit that the only way God could deal with us was by spanking, was by judgment. Man, you do something wrong, and the fire from heaven falls and devours you, amen. That gets the point across pretty strong. But once you get a born-again spirit, God never intended that to be his perfect way. Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 tells you that the old covenant was temporary. It never was God's best. God always had something better planned. Now we've got it, and brothers and sisters, you've got to withdraw yourself from the law because this calls it administration of death and administration of condemnation, and it is completely diametrically opposed to the administration of righteousness. The Old Testament law says if you don't go to church, God's mad at you. The New Covenant says God loves you regardless because you've accepted Jesus. The Old Covenant says, man, I'm going to say something that's going to rile somebody, amen, but I'm going to say it anyway. Let's look in Malachi chapter 3. I don't know why the Lord... Well, I do know, I do know why the Lord does. Praise the Lord. I told the Lord I'd preach what He wanted me to preach. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with the curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. 
I have heard people, I have heard faith ministers minister on this scripture and say, you owe God a tithe. They minister it as a law and as a condemnation that if you don't give, God is going to cut your water off. You aren't going to have finances, you aren't going to have blessings, you aren't going to have anything else. And they even go as far as to say that if you will tithe, God will rebuke the devourer for you. Now, I want to say this. I am not against tithing. Everybody get me right? I am not against tithing, but I am against a law and administration of death associated with tithing, and it has been presented that way. Did you know most Christians today give the first 10%, and I've heard a lot of people say this, well, that's not an offering. I owe that to God. If you're giving it as a debt, trying to pay God back and say you owe him, you might as well keep it. You're going to need it. The Bible says out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. Let every man give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you're giving because you owe this to God, go back under the old covenant, amen. That was a temporary thing established. Now, I don't believe that God intends you to quit giving. The New Testament teaches giving, and personally, I believe the New Testament teaches giving 100%. Every penny I got's God's. I believe he wants me to pay my bills, and if he tells me to give 100% of my paycheck, I'll give it. Amen. And I can further verify that this was under an Old Testament ministration of law because it says that God will rebuke the devourer for you. And I've heard some people say, if you'll give your tithes, God's going to rebuke this situation for you. That's not the truth. Under the old covenant, God rebuked the devil for you when you got under the law and under his protection because you had no authority over the devil. But under the new covenant, I'm a newborn again man and my spirit has authority over the devil. And brothers and sisters, if I don't rebuke the devil, he's not going to get rebuked. God doesn't rebuke the devil for me. The Bible says, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with other tongues. I can't pay my tithes and sit back and say, God, now you rebuke the devil for me. I'm fixing to get steamrolled. Now, am I saying not to give? Brothers and sisters, I believe in giving, but I believe in giving because you love God and because you want to give, not because you owe God 10%. If you are doing that, you would be better off to keep your money. It is not a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Even under the old covenant, did you know the people paid their tithes and God says, away with your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, I'm sick of them says it makes me sick is what he said it's a stink in my nostrils god got tired of that stuff under the old covenant brothers and sisters you can't buy god off with 10 percent everybody follow what i'm saying through this i am not preaching that you're wrong to be given a tie i'm preaching against the attitude that the world and the church realm has been using in it as it's a debt that i owe god I'm going to give my 10% or whatever I give, and I'm going to believe that it's an offering, and I'm going to expect to get every bit of it blessed back to me as an offering unto God. I've done it cheerfully, amen. I'm not going to say, well, that first 10% is my debt. I can't expect anything off that. I'm just giving that because God made me give it. Well, I'm not doing that because I'm destroying the whole purpose of it. Amen? Brothers and sisters, we are not under the law. The law is administration of death and administration of condemnation. I am not under a law that I have to go to church. Did you know it? 
Now, I'm stupid if I don't go to church because the Bible says in Hebrews that we are not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because, so that we won't be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We need to be exhorted by others. But if you are going to church because you feel like you've got a debt to pay to God or that somehow or another you are pleasing God by putting in your time on Sunday morning, go out to the lake. That'd be more pleasing to Him. Amen? God's sick and tired of hypocrites. God wants people to come because they love Him. Let me also share this, that the Old Testament law, the reason it was so effectual was because it dealt with a man's mind, not his spirit. His spirit was dead. It was a carnal thing ministered to his mind. Now, the law itself was not carnal, but it was carnally understood. Everybody follow that? Let me explain. The law of God is, thou shalt not do this. If you do, I'm going to destroy you. Now, that's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Man, the old carnal mind can grab hold of that. And that's the reason God gave it. It was so simple that there is never a person ever breathed that didn't understand the law of God. It is revealed to every person. And this is the reason that religion is still ministering law and legalism and condemning the people in the church today is because they don't have access to operating in the Spirit. They aren't flowing in the Holy Ghost. They've got to motivate their people somehow. They can't use the Spirit of God to do it because God's not going to motivate them to do a lot of the things that they're trying to get those people motivated to do. So let's throw in a little condemnation. You don't even have to have saved people sitting in the seats to understand that. You don't have to have people that are seeking God. You don't have to have a church that's listening to God. Just get up and preach that if you don't tithe, God's going to burn your barley fields. I had a preacher that says if you don't tithe, God's going to take it out in doctor bills. God will get his 10%. If you don't give it to him, he'll give it to the doctor through you. He's going to put sickness on you. That's what he was preaching. I've heard that kind of stuff preached. I've had people that babies died in a preacher stand up and say, that's God's judgment. God's getting you because you have not been serving him. The reason they minister that is because they are carnal. The people they're dealing with are carnal. They're trying to motivate them to come to church and to do some godly things, and they don't have the spirit to do it with, so minister the law. You can motivate people with the law. But you can't motivate them the way God wants them to be motivated. It'll put them into twice the bondage. And you can motivate people to give their 10% by preaching on tithing. But you'll never motivate them to give 20%. But did you know what? There are multitudes of stories of people who have been touched by God and have started giving 90% to the Lord and them living off 10%. Amen. Love is a superior force. I've seen some of you same people right here that I know that have given sacrificially over and above a lot larger than 10% into this ministry. And we have never one time pumped people for money. God is supplying our needs, amen? And it's because God's love is ministering. And love will constrain people to give away the gold out of their teeth. Did you know it? It really will. Love is a superior force. And brothers and sisters, we've been shortchanging the power of God by preaching condemnation and trying to get people to live a holy life. You better be a, live a holy life because God hates sin. You might as well forget it. You're putting those people in condemnation, and that condemnation is going to be a ministration of death. It's going to keep the life of God from flowing out of them. The way that God is now cleaning his people isn't from the outside in through preaching condemnation. It's from the inside out. He's telling his people, you're the righteousness of God. You're free from sin. And God's people get to seeing it and they say, praise God, if I'm free from sin, goodbye devil. And they just turn their back on them and they start living a holy life. They start getting cleansed from the inside out. The Spirit of God starts rising up on the inside of them. And that's what God's doing today. 
And brothers and sisters, you've got to stand against the law because the law is meant for a man with a dead spirit, and you do not have a dead spirit. You have a live spirit. I am not under the law, and I'm not under bondage, and God's not mad at me. I am in right standing with God. Praise the Lord. And if you'll go to recognizing that, just like it says in Philemon verse 6, the communication of your faith will become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing within you. Most of us were brought, to, brought up to believe that there wasn't any good thing in me. There's nothing good in me, but boy, there is. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let me share one last scripture on this. This is what finally sold me on the fact that I was righteous. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 made it so clear to me that I couldn't... Man, when I saw this, I got plum happy. I really did. Romans chapter 5. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, I can understand that. Can't you? Through Adam, I inherited Adam's sin. I didn't have to go do anything to sin. I inherited sin. I was born in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Psalms chapter 50 says that. I understood that. I was born with a dead spirit. I don't have to... We used to pass out these tracts, and it said, What you have to do to go to hell... And you open it up, and on the inside, it was totally blank. Two black pages. And then on the back, it says, that's right, nothing. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it gave the plan of salvation on the back. <laughs> we used to pass those out to emphasize to people that, look, you don't have to go out and live in sin to go to hell. You're, a, you're born headed that direction. You've got to do something to get out of hell. So I could understand that. Drop down to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, by the offense of Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, that means in the same manner, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now that scripture said that in the same way as I accepted the fact that I was born in sin, now that was a little bit hard for me to understand, but you know, I had it ground into me and I accepted it. It says in the same way you are born righteous through the righteousness of one, the Lord Jesus. And then the next verse says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I didn't have to go out and sin to be a sinner. I was born a sinner. And brothers and sisters, I don't have to go out and live righteous to be righteous. I am born again righteous. Now, I am going to go live righteous because I am righteous. Amen. There's two types of righteousness. The righteousness that you're living and then the righteousness of your spirit that Jesus bought and paid for. But in the same way as I didn't have to sin to be a sinner, I don't have to be righteous to become righteous. I put my faith in Jesus who is righteous for me. And that makes it so clear that if I can accept the fact that I was condemned and that I deserve hell, I ought to accept the fact that I deserve heaven through what Jesus did. I accepted it through what Adam did. Now I accept just the opposite through what Jesus did. And when I saw that, even as condemned as I was, I had to say, Lord, I still don't understand it all, but I'm going to accept it just exactly the same as I accepted the fact that I was going to hell. I'm accepting the fact that I'm righteous. I'm accepting the fact that I'm in right standing with God and that I deserve to get my prayers answered exactly the same as Jesus does because I have the Spirit of Jesus and I pray in the name of Jesus. That means because of His righteousness, because of His holiness. And man, I tell you, it set me free. Did you know how condemned I was? The week that the Lord showed this to me, I fasted and prayed all week long to study this. And at the end of the week, I had a dog that was named Honey. And it was a German shepherd, three-fourths shepherd and one-fourth chow. And that dog, anyway, I played with that dog a lot. And I was out in the backyard, in my mother's backyard, walking and praying. 
And as I was, I looked, and my dog had dug two holes under our fence into the backyard of the people behind us. And when I saw that, I said, oh, no, that guy's not going to like this. And I said, I need to come out here and cover those holes up. And so then I walked back in the house, and a little bit later, I was out in the backyard again. Guess what? My backdoor neighbor came over, and he called me over, and I started talking to him. We shot the breeze for a while, and then he said, Andy, did you notice those holes that your dog dug under my fence? And the way he said it stuck, struck fear into me, you know, like he was really displeased. And I said, no, I didn't, because at first, when he said that, it had slipped my mind, but I mean, before I even got those words out of my mouth, I remembered I'd seen those things. But rather than tell him what I'd done, I just acted like, really? And I went over there and looked at those holes and thought, well, I'll be. And I said, I'll have to go get something and clean these up. I just lied. I lied as big as a lie could be to that man. It was not intentional, but regard, I did it. And then I covered it up. That was terrible. And boy, when I got back in the house, all my condemnation came pouring in on me, and the devil started quoting scriptures to me. Did you know the devil knows scripture? No liar or covetous person which is an idolater have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. No liar shall enter into the kingdom of God. All liars shall be cast out into outer darkness. And man, I became, oh God, forgive me. And I asked forgiveness a dozen times. And for two days, I couldn't even approach God because I said, man, I'm just nothing but a big fat liar. And I couldn't read the word. I couldn't pray or do anything because I had lied. Ain't that stupid? It is. That is stupid. Amen. It was stupid on my part. Because you see, what I'd forgotten was I asked the Lord to forgive me and cleanse me. And the scripture says if we confess it, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Now, I agree that I gave place to the devil. And through me doing that, Satan came at me and condemned me. And it did need to be dealt with. It doesn't. I'm not telling you to pass over sin and forget it. It needs to be dealt with, but not for the point of being able to approach unto God. I should have been able to run straight to God with my sin and say, God, I'm sorry. Get the devil off my back. I'm sorry. I repent. I change. That's what Adam and Eve should have done was run to God, not run away from God. But you see, condemnation makes people run from God. We should run straight to him knowing that we have been forgiven and cleansed and sanctified forever. And I tell you, it took me over two days to get over the fact that I had done that, and it wasn't even intentional. It was a mistake, and I really was sorry for it, and I asked God a hundred times to forgive me. And brothers and sisters, a person that has to beg and plead with God to get forgiveness and cleansing is messed up by religious doctrine, by man's doctrine, because I guarantee you the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. You don't have to go to God and do penance for your sins. Jesus purchased my salvation, and when I confessed Jesus is my Lord, praise God, he bore my stripes. He carried my sorrow. He bore those things for me. And brothers and sisters, I don't have to bear it, and you don't have to bear it. And if you can understand what we're talking about tonight, it'll give you a boldness and a relationship with God that won't let you go live in sin. It'll let you go free from sin. Praise God. Let's stand up. We're going to have a word of prayer.